I want to give a shout out real, real quick to uh, our sanctuary men who showed up Thursday night for our pack night. Um, wives, girlfriends, fiancés, moms, anybody who sent, uh, sent your boy out to do the labor on Thursday, just know it took us so long to do all of this difficult, difficult work. <laughs> it took us like 15 minutes to pack all those meals, y'all, and we were there for like two and a half hours. <laughs> Just enjoying each other. And so, uh, guys, thank you. It was over 200 pounds of uh, food that we donated to Iron Gate. And uh, so they're super appreciative. And I just love that we're being about good work in our community, especially the work that Iron Gate is doing. Today is the first season in Lent. This is the traditional 40 days between Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. And over those six weeks, we consider things like the fact that we are, we're creatures. We are created beings. We think about the ways in which we are dust. For those of you who came to our Ash Wednesday service, you showed up and we marked your foreheads in ash and reminded you that you are dust. To dust you shall return, but the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. We are mere mortals. We are human beings. And we also acknowledge our need in this season for repentance, for forgiveness. Remember, you are dust, but you are dust that is loved by God. Lent is this time where we give up things. We set aside certain things, even good things. And we do that as a way of learning to redirect those longings from the things themselves, we'd redirect those longings to God. It's a way of us saying, God, as much as we love these things, whatever these things constitutes for you, I love you more. I desire you more. And so this is a season of, of cultivating hunger and longing and desire in us. And then as those feelings of longing and desire well up within us. We direct those things in a very particular direction. We direct those things toward God. The point of this season, of course, is not to try and earn anything from God. Lent is not just the super Christian season where we try to get God to do things for us by way of fasting and penance and almsgiving. We are already perfectly loved. This echoes our, our New Year's resolutions. Remember back in January, we told you there is no resolution that if kept perfectly will make you more worthy of love. You are perfectly loved by God. And in the same way, there's, there is no fast that if perfectly kept will make God love you more, will convince God to do something for you that God does not otherwise want to do for you. There's nothing adding to or taking away from God's love and care for you in this season. The point of Lent, as we've often said here at Sanctuary, is to make room for God. This is the point of, of the season. This word Lent, it comes from this Latin word meaning spring. It's where we get the idea for spring cleaning, right? Which heads up. Somewhere in the near future, we're going to have a little spring cleaning day at Sanctuary. Hey, uh, next Sunday, 
We've been in this building one year. Pretty awesome. And um, pretty amazing how quickly we can fill up closets and make a mess of things. So we would, uh, we would love your help when we do come up with a, a spring cleaning day. But this is where we get this idea from, that we're putting away some of the clutter of our lives to this end, to the specific point of making room for God. We want to declutter. We want to prepare our lives for that new thing that God wants to do in us individually and as a community. But as much as Lent is about making room for God, what I want to suggest to us today is that our Lenting, our fasting, our making room for God is only possible because God has made room for us. In Matthew's gospel today, we're told that Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, in our, in our Genesis passage, our Old Testament reading for today, we find the, the serpent, the devil, we assume, trying to persuade us, trying to persuade Adam and Eve to imagine God saying something that God didn't actually say saying something that God didn't ever tell them. Your eyes will be opened, the serpent says. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. But in the Matthew text here in our, in our gospel reading for today, Satan presents God's actual words to Jesus. He doesn't try to get Jesus to believe in something that God never said. He tries to get Jesus to believe in what God said in ways that are inappropriate to misunderstand what God has promised. It's crafty, it's tricky. Oftentimes, you know, we think of the devil as being really obvious. We forget that the trick of the devil is a trick, which means it has to have some kind of craft, some kind of allure to it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that this is the trick of the devil, that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. It doesn't make sense for an angel of light to try and get us to just not believe in God. That's, that's too obvious, right? The real trick that the devil plays on us is to get us to believe in God in ways that are unfaithful. To believe in promises of God that God never promised to us in the first place to lead us to misunderstandings of who God is and what God has said, to mischaracterize God. And when we fall for this trick, which we so often do, it ends up creating this cycle of our own frustration, our own anger toward God for not doing what God never said he was going to do in the first place, waiting on God to do what God is never going to do because God never said he was going to do it. Here's what I mean. So many of us have been told that the most important thing for us as Christians is just to believe and to believe as intensely as possible. And so we end up believing strongly, but too often we're believing in misunderstandings of who God is and what God wants to do for us. So it looks like this. We declare that God is our provider. We love this promise. But then we rely on our own sense of what it is that we need. 
We declare that God is our healer, but we assume that we know and we understand what health actually looks like for us. We trust God as both our deliverer and our protector, but then we expect God's deliverance to come on our own terms and in our own time. And all this does for us is lead from suffering to suffering, from frustration to frustration, and from disappointment to disappointment. Not because God is unfaithful, not because God isn't our provider, not because God won't heal us, not because God doesn't protect us and sustain us, but because our expectations of God are built on our own understanding instead of who God actually is. What's worse is that oftentimes we take our misunderstandings about God and we try to push those misunderstandings onto other people as well, meaning as we may be. When we do that, we actually offer them something of the devil's temptation. We end up offering what Jesus means for life, the bread, and we actually offer people stones. We take this thing that God means for our good and for the nourishment of our neighbor and we turn it into a burden. We turn it into a, a burden that God never intended to lay on us or on other people. We take the bread of life and we turn it into a millstone that we tie around people's necks. One of the most common ways we do this, as well-meaning as we are, is telling people in the face of difficult situations that, hey, this is all part of God's plan. You've said it, I've said it, we've all said it. And we know what we mean, but that's not what people hear. When we're faced with suffering and we're faced with pain and with evil, when we're contending against the devil in some way, what we need is not a white knuckling of our faith that borders on certainty. James Cone in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which we just finished our small book Sunday school group uh, reading through this book, he talks about Ida Wells and her fearless opposition against what she calls the white Christian lynching of black bodies. And she says this, Faith and doubt were bound together, with each a check against the other. Doubt preventing faith from being too sure of itself, and faith keeping doubt from going down into the pit of despair. She says, with faith in one hand and doubt in the other, I contended against the evils of lynching. This is how we're called to face pain and suffering, the difficulty of a season like Lent, not trying to double down on our certainty in the midst of uncertainty, but by realizing our life of faith really is only possible as hope, which is a hope against the doubting, the questioning, the uncertainty of life. But again, this is the trick that the devil plays on us, not to doubt. The devil's not trying to get us to doubt. The devil's not trying to get us to question, not to disbelieve God entirely. Again, doubting is not the enemy of faith. The trick that the devil plays on us is to passionately believe in promises that God never made that will lead you to a life that you think is faith, but it's really just magical thinking. 
on some level, this should give us a healthy suspicion of who we believe God is. And instead, we ought to rely on the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ more than the God of our own understanding. We can't just trust our experiences with God. We have to learn to depend on Jesus's experience with the Father. Robert Jensen once famously wrote, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That is who God is. At the worst moment when you're not sure who God is or what God's promises are or what God wants to do for you, that's a statement you can rely on. That God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. And when you're not sure what God is up to, who God is or what God's promises actually are, remember they always look like resurrection. When you're finding it hard to believe that God is actually as good, better in fact than what we want to believe, remind yourself, love does such things. I'm reading this book right now uh, called The Lord, and it's, it's all about Jesus and Jesus' life and who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And it's a huge book. It's like six, like for me, it's like 600 and some pages and I'm just drowning in it. And there's a, a, a line that I just have to keep coming back to. And the author mentions, as I'm thinking about Christ's own life and reading about Christ's own life, there are parts of it that just don't seem believable. <laughs> there are parts of it where Jesus seems too good to be true. And I try to think, how can that thing actually be? And he keeps coming back to this line, love does such things. When it doesn't make sense, love does such things. When you don't know how God is going to be good to you in whatever season you're finding yourself in, remember, love does such things. This is the love that God has for us. And in that way, all of God's promises for us are yes and amen, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And that sounds exciting. That sounds like something we want to hang our hope on because what God did for Jesus, we trust that God will do for us. Love does such things. The downside, and you knew that was coming, we're in Lent. The downside is that the way of Jesus first leads us to a cross. The way of Jesus often looks like foolishness to us. It is the upside down, subversive wisdom of the gospel that asks us to do things like love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, to believe that God can mend those tricky, broken, too far gone relationships. If uh, you're somebody who joins us on our uh, online Abbey for, for prayer regularly, you know that one of the blessings at the end of that prayer, it comes to us out of Ephesians 3. It says, glory to God whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. And we love it. Glory to God whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Do you know the context of that verse? 
Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking about all of their broken, too far gone relationships. He's telling the church at Ephesus, hey, you've got a lot going on here. <laughs> you've got a lot of disunity. You've got a lot of uncertainty about this whole Jewish and Gentile thing that God is up to. You don't see a way through it. You can't imagine how these broken, fractured relationships are actually going to be mended and healed. But glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. This isn't just about God giving you a really good life. This isn't just about God answering prayers in ways that are surprising to you. This is about the, the messiest, most broken, most fractured, busted relationship that you have. God can fix even that thing because God has the imagination for it. God can do more for you than you even know how to ask for. This is why the season of Lent is so important for us. Because the, the shock of Good Friday and the even greater shock of Resurrection Sunday is going to hit us as it always does. Christ's death and resurrection is going to surprise us like it always does. And Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, they say more loudly and more clearly than any other moment that God's strength, God's strength, is in God's weakness. That all of our power that we love to cling to is made perfect and is found in God's powerlessness. This is something of what Paul means again in 2 Corinthians when he says that my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the best way, the only way to prepare us for the shock of that moment, which feels like a grand reversal of all these things, the only way that we can prepare for waking up on Resurrection Sunday and finding life through death and strength and weakness is a season where we prepare ourselves. We get our feet planted underneath us as we trust God and declutter our lives, getting ready for what's ahead of us. For many of us, we do this, again, by way of fasting. This week, I stumbled on this old quote from our friend, Father Chris. He says, in this season, we don't just fast occasional meals, familiar luxuries, shallow entertainments. Again, we're not doing this for self-improvement or for our health, after all. Like Christians have been doing since the beginning, we ought to fast from hasty words and needless chatter, from contemptuous and mistrustful thoughts from angry and bitter feelings. We fast from unwarranted judgments about ourselves and about others. We give up self-hate. We give up impatience with our children. We give up fear of strangers and hatred of our enemies. And we give away food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, shelter to the homeless. We visit the sick and the imprisoned. We bury the dead with honor. We offer instruction to the ignorant, counsel to the doubting, comfort to the sorrowful, reproof for the erring. We forgive those who wronged us. 
and we bear with those who trouble and annoy us. We pray for anyone and everything. To say all of that a bit differently, your fasting is not for you. (laughs) Your fasting is about what God will do in you for your neighbor so that we can truly offer bread instead of stones. Our text today tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And this is significant for a number of reasons. But what I want us to hear today is that Jesus didn't fast to merely provide an example to us or to prove to us that we ought to fast. Jesus fasted to make it possible for our fasting to actually work good in us. He fasted so that our fasts aren't merely religious exercises, that they're not just for self-improvement or losing a few pounds before spring break, but that by making room in our lives for God, we can find that God in Jesus Christ is the one who has already made room for us. As Second Peter says, Christ's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness so that we can participate in Christ's divine nature. This is what that verse is saying, that God becomes human in Jesus, takes on our flesh and blood, steps into all that it is to be human, experiencing hunger and thirst and temptation and pain and loss and joy, all so that we can participate in Christ's life. Here's what that looks like for us. When Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, he has no need for being baptized. Jesus goes down into the waters in order to sanctify the waters for us so that as we are baptized in the waters, we are joined in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, that we are made new creatures, as Paul says. Like Adam, Jesus is sent, Jesus is begotten of the Father from paradise out into the world, but Jesus resists temptation, unlike Adam, so that we can be carried along by him in overcoming our own temptations. The Israelites wander around the wilderness for 40 years, consistently falling into this trap of unfaithfulness, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness to show us what faithfulness in the wilderness actually looks like. Jesus doesn't need to die, but he willingly subjects himself to death, even death on a cross, so that even in death, we don't have to fear and we can trust in the goodness of God because Jesus' death is the death that puts death to death. This is what it is for God to make room for us to redeem spaces of unfaithfulness in our lives so that we can be saved. But we don't just simply observe Jesus in our humanity. We are called to obedience in imitating Christ. And so we willingly submit ourselves to a hard and difficult season, but a hopeful season like Lent. Again, our Old Testament text today is the story of Adam and Eve and how sin enters the world. 
This, this story hits on some of the things that Lent invites us to consider. It makes us think about our creatureliness and our sinfulness. Uh, this icon here, some of you have asked about it. This is an icon, uh, it's by a Ukrainian artist whose name I can't remember. But in the center of this icon is the Ukrainian word for word. And if you're unsure of what the scene is that we're looking at, this is the moment of creation. And so this is God represented as Christ. You can tell by the halo around him at the top, speaking the word as the word himself. And then you follow the circle from left to right and it follows the movements of creation all the way leading to Adam and Eve. I think it's fascinating. I don't know how much of this is on purpose, but if you can see Adam, he looks exactly like Jesus. But Adam's face, he's turned away. He looks ashamed in some way. And we know, we trust that Jesus steps into the world as the new Adam. So he's looking with hope, speaking a word, the word, caring and holding that creation in love. This is the, what this season is about, thinking about our createdness and also our sinfulness. It's not about considering those things on their own terms. It's about what happens to us, what happens to our creatureliness and our sinfulness as those things are taken up in the life of Christ and they are transfigured. Remember, the gateway into this season was last Sunday, transfiguration. The whole point of this season is for us to be transfigured. What happens then is our creatureliness becomes holy with God's own holiness. As 1 Peter says, be holy as I am holy. How is that possible? It's only possible in Christ. It's only possible in Christ because Christ has stepped into our creatureliness and redeemed it. Christ has made our creatureliness holy in some way. This means the goal is not for us to be less and less human as we move toward holiness, but to move toward everything God intended for it to mean to be human, to enjoy God and to work with God for the good of the world. This is the point of our fasting. Rowan Williams says that to submit to God is to be most directly in touch with what is most real. He says to refuse submission is not for us to be free of an alien violence, some outside oppression, but to become an alien to yourself. What is most real is our life submitted before God to be obedient, to commit to something like fasting during Lent isn't about grasping for something outside of yourself. Again, we don't earn anything from God by fasting, but getting in touch with the parts of us that make us the most human in the light of Christ and to offer up those things to God, those longings, those desires, even our desires for good things. So often we resist hunger pains 
We satiate every desire. We consume whatever we want so that we never have to suffer any need or feel any pain. But that's not the life of trust and dependence that we are called to. And that kind of living, it never really touches our neighbor, except in violent ways, except in competitive ways when we're grasping and reaching for the very same things that they're reaching and grasping for. This means that any sin in our life is not just about the failure to live a good, clean life, but the refusal to let God's goodness come alive in us for the good of other people. Sin then is whatever that thing is that stifles or frustrates the fullness of joy in our neighbor's lives. To come back to Father Chris's words, our fasting is not just about taking away, it's also about giving up, offering up something different, about giving up self-hatred, giving up our impatience with our children, giving up our fear of strangers, our hatred of our enemies, giving up food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, giving up forgiveness, to those who wrong us. But if our fasting is just for ourselves, we fall into this trap of just being religious or seeking some kind of self-improvement. And if we do that, the world will never be healed. I'll close this morning with this passage from Isaiah 30, our Old Testament text today. It says, though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way walk in it. Listen, I know fasting is difficult. And hear this today, fasting is not required of us. It's a practice we are invited into. It's an opportunity for us to engage in obedience. So if you are new to the faith, if you are someone who's still recovering from the ways that fasting has been used as a manipulation to get something from God, there is no judgment for not fasting. Fasting really is a grace. It's space that's marked out for us in Christ that helps us to love God more, to love our families more, to love our neighbors more. And so if you're here at the start of these 40 days and you're not sure if you really want to stick with it or you're worried about fasting perfectly or just not messing it up, hear the word of the Lord today that your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or you turn to the left, you wander from your fasting, you don't do this perfectly, your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Amen. Amen.